This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, our next guest writes in his uh, op-ed in the National Post, vaccinations are the single most important invention of this pandemic. And I think that that's undeniably true. However, the case for vaccine mandates, it's a very different conversation. When it comes to learning, all learning, be it, you know, K to 12 or post-secondary, I, I think it's really important that, you know, in-person learning, that we return to that and don't deviate from that. Uh, and, and to try to do so with minimal disruption. Are we at a point now where we can proceed without any sort of mandates or public health measures? That's subjective. Now, there are some post-secondary institutions in Canada that feel that some measures are still needed, including masking and or vaccine mandates. Now, Western University in London has kind of been a flashpoint in this debate. Uh, they've mandated both. Uh, that students have to be vaccinated with at least one booster and masks are going to be mandatory. There's been some protests at Western University and a lot of debate about whether these mandates make sense. And I think that's how we have to approach it. Uh, yes, there's the you know, politics of vaccines and, and all of that, and it, it can become a very polarizing issue. But in terms of what makes the most sense for public health, how should we approach this? Uh, so the op-ed in question uh, from our next guest argues that this, mac- uh, this vaccine mandate could harm students and fail to protect the most vulnerable. So joining us to talk more about these important issues, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease physician at St. Joe's in Hamilton, associate professor at McMaster University. Dr. Chagla, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, good afternoon, Rob. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously you've seen this. It's an emotional and polarizing debate. And I think we, we've, we've seen that many times over uh, over the last year. But your thoughts on, on where we're at right now and why you believe that these kind of mandates for universities don't make sense. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we have to frame things and, and we're using rules from 2021. Well, 2021, we had vaccines that had very good efficacy against infection. We had you know, very little of the population that had been infected to this point. Um, and, and so, you know, universities looking at health and safety, knowing that a Congress setting was going to be an issue, uh, rightfully, I think, put in place these mandates. We're in 2022 now. Mm-hmm. And number one, vaccinations still remain really, really good in terms of preventing severe disease, people landing in hospital. We see that every day. But we have to recognize that vaccines have lost a lot of their efficacy in terms of preventing infection. And so, you know, there is a little bit, it is time limited. So, you know, 20 weeks after that dose is given, people lose their efficacy in terms of protecting against infection. Uh, And so, you know, when we start talking about mandates then, especially as the, um, the impetus here is to reduce transmission, and we're talking about a mandate that may not reduce transmission significantly, it starts calling the question, okay, what, what are the, the harms of this exclusion? I think the other part is, look, the difference between 2021 and 2022 is 60% of the adult population has had COVID, and that's overrepresented in 18 to 29-year-olds. And again, those people have some protection. We wish they couldn't, you know, didn't have it without, without being vaccinated, but it happened. 
And and so, you know, again, you're you're talking about this immunity patchwork where different people are in different places and, you know, their level of protection is probably in the same ballpark, but you're excluding one group versus the other. And there are harms, right? There's myocarditis. And yes, it's a low risk. You know, the Ontario data suggests about 30 in a million on that booster dose in young men aged 18 to 25. But that's still a risk that person has to take. And, and so, you know, if you've had two vaccines, you had Omicron in, in December or January, do you really have to take that third dose when your immunity is actually pretty good and, and recognizing you're probably not going to get a lot out of it? Sure, you can make that an individual decision, but is that the decision for someone to go to school or not? And, you know, with public health, look, I think mandates got people vaccinated, but it also pushed people against the wall. And I think there are a lot of people that have not come back for that third dose that may not come back for a booster dose this fall because of the fact that they felt like they were coerced into doses. And, and again, that's not going to be healthy for the pandemic moving forward. And I think the last thing, look, I grew up in London, Ontario. It's a place near and dear to me. I'm a Western grad. My mom is a Western grad. But... You know, there is something about students from that area um, having access to a school. And so in London, there are marginalized students, there are racialized students. If you look at Ontario's data, they're the ones that are least vaccinated by postal code. Even in London, you know, Western is a home field advantage. They can stay at home and go to school from that place. Some of these kids come from places where there's medical distrust from the governments they've lived under, you know, foreign-wise. foreign, foreign wise. If you're excluding them from school, there's going to be downstream complications for them. They're going to lose you know, the social value of being in university, but there is economic and financial costs for not being able to go to school or interrupt their schooling because of the need to get another vaccine. So I think you know, when you put the balance of all of that, we really have to be sure that you know, the benefits here outweigh the risks. And, and I, you know, I put that op-ed in place saying, I don't know if that's really uh, going to help. And, and in the global scheme, you know, is that really going to make the pandemic slow down in any degree? Or is it just going to make us feel better that we did more to prevent transmission without any significant results? Right. And, and that's ultimately how we have to judge public health measures, right? Like what what are the results that we expect? What what can we reasonably expect from, from public health measures? And, you know, for getting minimal benefit, but we've got backlash or a downside, that's not really advancing the cause of public health then, is it? Absolutely. Look, and, and again, public health is, is holistic, right? It's not just the absence or presence of disease. It's social factors, it's emotional factors, it's environmental factors. And so, again, I would argue that 18-year-old who has two doses of vaccine that had an Omicron infection that's being excluded from going to school and doing an undergraduate degree at the place that they could only afford to go to because they can live at home, you know, there may be consequences to that person's health that are much higher than the uh, ability to get a third dose of vaccine in that sense. They can get that third dose. I'm not saying they shouldn't. They, they probably should at some point or another. But is it that the marker to say that person needs to go into university? And again, I can't find an immunologic explanation, a transmission explanation. And again, you know, there are downstream consequences there. And we have to think about this. Look, there's data from the United States. Cornell University, vaccine mandate, mask mandate, did really well in Delta, did really well in 2021. Omicron marched through, and the university essentially had huge levels of transmission. Not Some of it is at the university, but some of it reflected the fact that the community had a lot of transmission in December, January, and February, like we saw around the world. Uh, in conversation here with Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease physician, associate professor at McMaster University, talking about, uh, you know, the situation in post-secondary education, but the broader picture about you know, where things are headed in the fall. And, and we are in an interesting uh, period right now, Dr. Chagla, because, 
in most of the countries experienced, like other countries, a, a, a BA5 wave that, that seems to be subsiding. Um, we, we don't know what might be coming next when it comes to variants. Obviously, the fall and winter present different kinds of challenges. When you take a step back, what, what do our priorities actually need to be heading into the fall and winter? Who's been affected the most by BA2, BA4, BA5? You know, my clinical experience with showing up in Ontario's data is that this is disproportionately affecting elderly individuals. This is disproportionately affecting uh, people that are immunocompromised. Yes, there are the odd young individuals who are unvaccinated that are also suffering the complications from this, but those are the major two groups that are overrepresented. The good news is, is we have tools, right? You know, vaccinating with a third and fourth dose, and even maybe these bivalent vaccines that are coming out, and an elderly individual is probably going to give them an extra layer of protection to make sure that they have a mild illness if they ever contact COVID. We have drugs to deal with COVID-19, Paxlovid and, and Remdesivir, and, and they've been incredibly effective. I've been one of Canada's largest pro- providers of drug in our clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they kept immunocompromised, very, very underlying sick illnesses out of hospital and had the normal recovery as long as they got access care in time. And so, you know, instead of worrying about Western, uh, there's a huge argument to start doubling down on this, putting our resources into this, making sure that the right people are vaccinated as much as possible, making sure people have access to treatment as quickly as possible who are high risk. And I think we'll mitigate a lot of the hospitalization that way as compared to, you know, doing the things that we did in 20 and 2020 and 2021. Right. And, you know, we've we got some new boosters on the horizon. Do you, do you think that we're, you know, in, in addition to everything you, you just listed, are we in a better position than we were, say, uh, this time last year, or this time two years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the technology has evolved. We have treatments, meaning that, again, high-risk people have another layer of protection to make sure that they resolve quickly. And again, we're seeing trials where the hospitalization rate after getting one of these treatments is less than 1% in a high-risk population. Um you know, we can't dis- not discount the fact that 60% of Canadians getting COVID meant that they had another layer of immunity, which probably stabilizes the pandemic even more. This virus will evolve, and I think, you know, we, we have to consider what happens when the virus evolves in that sense. Uh, but at the same time, you know, things are very different now. And, and again, you know, we're not seeing that ICU overload that we saw in the first four waves that really devastated our hospitals. Yes, we have health human resource staffing issues, but they're not COVID-related. Uh, you know, the, the number of people in hospital, number of people in ICU is relatively low compared. And the acuity of those patients is even lower. You know, they're not breaking hospitals. There's a lot of other things going on there. We'll leave it there. As mentioned, your op-ed, it's up at uh, nationalpost.com. Some important issues there. Dr. Chagall, always appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today. No problem. Take care, Rob. All the best. Dr. Zane Chagall, infectious disease physician, associate professor at McMaster University. Uh, So he says, let's focus working collectively on the things that matter rather than increasing divisiveness and harm. So he's not convinced that these booster mandates at Western University and some other post-secondary institutions make sense. Doesn't think it's going to do much to advance public health, that there's certainly some downside to pushing this. When we can focus on other ways of protecting the vulnerable going forward into the fall and winter months here. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sour of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Now, the summer travel season is starting to wind down, uh, but there are still delays, chaos, confusion, frustration. Uh, the travelers are encountering at airports right across the country. Now, the federal government says, you know, the side that's in their control, things are starting to improve in terms of passport delays, the situation at airports. That's something else, obviously, travelers have been running into are, are some of the staffing issues at airlines. And airlines have, uh, as a result of that, had to cut back on some flights this summer. And also, they've had to cancel some, some flights on, on a more arbitrary, random basis. Now, for travelers who have had their flights abruptly canceled, where do they turn when it comes to lodging a complaint, making sure that they're properly compensated or that they're taken care of, that the airlines are living up to their obligations? Now, in 2019, uh, the government brought in, the federal government brought in new passenger rights legislation, right, that, that was supposed to make it clear what the airlines were obligated to do. When it came to respecting passengers' rights, are they living up to that? And is that the fault, if they're not, of the airlines themselves? Is it a fault of some of the holes or gaps in the regulations? An interesting uh, piece in the Globe and Mail today looking at uh, all of this. Uh, joining us uh, on the line is uh, the author of that piece, Daniel Sai, uh, teaches law and business at the University of Toronto, Toronto Metropolitan University, also the editor of consumerrights.ca. Daniel, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's talk about, um, you know, what, at least on paper, we have in this country for passenger rights. If I'm traveling, the airline suddenly cancels my flight, what are they obligated to do? What what do I, as a traveler, have a right to expect? Well, the uh, regulations came in 2019, and the uh, expectation is if there is a delay, Small airlines uh, have a responsibility to compensate passengers up to $500, and large airlines like the big two, uh, WestJet and Air, Air Canada, they have an obligation to compensate up to $1,000 for delays. Um, other situations uh, that happen to travelers is losing their luggage. Uh, if they uh, happen to have uh, delays getting their luggage and... Um, uh, if there are circumstances within the control of the airline uh, where they uh, have cancellations or they have, uh, they have to stay at the airport uh, and need a hotel, they have to provide accommodations and uh, support for them. So uh, those regulations are meant to provide clarity and uh, protection for passenger rights to ensure that consumers are fully taken care of in all those circumstances that we uh, are quite quite often going through. Right. So if uh, a disruption or cancellation is something that's within the control of the airlines, then then that's something then that, you know, passengers are, you know, can reasonably expect some, some compensation. But I think maybe part of what we're running into is this, maybe, you know, the stated reason for a cancellation, you know, the, the leeway that airlines have when, when assigning uh, a reason or an excuse for a, a delay or cancellation. How, how much gray area is there? So this is an interesting situation involving 
um, Alberta's own WestJet. Uh, although I have to say it's now actually really run out of Ontario because it's uh, owned by conglomerates out here. But the reality is uh, WestJet got into a situation where they had a pilot. Um, and so unfortunately, uh, because of staffing issues, this was in somewhere in Saskatchewan, uh, they were unable to provide a pilot for the plane because they did not have a backup. They couldn't, they couldn't find another pilot to take that, that uh, pilot spot. And so what happened was the uh, CTA, Canadian Transportation Agency, came out and ruled and said that you cannot use staffing as a reason to uh, avoid your obligations as an airline for passenger compensation for whether it's a delay uh, in that case. And so what happened was WestJet decided to file a appeal of the CTA decision, and it has not yet been decided by the Federal Court of Appeal whether they will hear the appeal, but they did file an appeal to basically make the argument that the um, airline should not be responsible for staffing issues that would impact uh, and impinge their ability to fly the plane because they're calling that a, a required safety issue. So the key thing here is the regulation state for passenger rights, that if it's required for safety, um, then the airline is off the hook on compensation. And it doesn't take too long for the lawyers to get involved to say, well, almost all these things that are happening could be required for safety sure. and and so forth uh, in order to avoid paying what the passenger is owed. Right, which is an odd <laughs> uh, definition of what counts as a safety issue versus what's in the control of the airline. Because if the airline's responsible for what then is a safety issue, I guess it's kind of in both categories. Well, we got to... Yeah, we have to look at exactly what we mean by control. If we want to really get down to it, um, the big airlines uh, and actually quite a number of the airlines decided they would cut back dramatically in terms of their staffing. Uh, so we had massive layoffs, which impacted uh, WestJet and Air Canada. Um, the government Canada stepped up and offered loans and money to backstop the airlines to ensure that they could keep staff on and people wouldn't lose their jobs. And the other thing in terms of control is the airlines, as we notably saw, uh, WestJet and Air Canada have cut back on the flights because they had overbooked the flights in anticipation of high season, despite not having gone out and hired or rehired all those people they had laid off, they, they you know, uh, prematurely uh, decided to uh, overfill the schedule and uh, couldn't fly all those flights. So if you think about it, the control really, or the buck stops with the airline. The, the airline has to manage itself. It has to anticipate. It has to work with the parameters of the uh, market environment and uh so we have a situation here where that whole definition of control is now just being uh something debated now among the lawyers well that's the thing so so for the passengers affected now they have to then turn to the is it the canadian transportation agency that that's supposed to handle or manage these complaints 
They do indeed, Matt, but this is one of the things that's really interesting is there's been a number of reports and the CBC, CTV, and all the major news media with respect to individual passengers, families being stranded, you know, a lot of passengers going through a lot of heartache and problems with the airlines who have made complaints directly to the airline to get their compensation. And in some of those reportage, uh, including CBC most recently on the National, uh, there's a great piece by Sophia Harris last week, uh, where she documents a few passengers who had their evidence that the departures are pre-flight and the airline denied it and said, uh, you know, it's not our fault. It's a, it's a safety issue. And they wouldn't get all the, uh, the, the actual information. And the information that was provided was contradictory and very scant to what the passenger had uh, documented. So we have a situation here where, where not all the cards are being on the being put on the table. And that's problematic because the average person is not like myself or they're not a lawyer. They're not uh, trained to, uh, to be experts in the law of evidence. Uh, they're not going into this as lawyers. They can't force disclosure by the airline. So they're really um, trying to bank on the honesty and the goodwill of the airline to be open and forthright in their disclosure. Now, if it turns out they've had enough of that, and a lot of passengers will walk away from the frustration, then it goes to the CTA, the Canadian Transportation Agency, with a formal complaint. And we have a situation now where there are 18,000 complaints and growing wow. uh, daily in terms of the backlog because uh, the CTA just hasn't been able to deal with all these complaints against the airlines. And that's a function of the lack of transparency and accountability that we have right now. So what needs to change? Well, the thing is this. It comes down to um, how the system is set up. We have a lack of competition in the country. We, uh, we, we don't like foreign ownership. So we effectively have created an oligopoly of a few big airlines that dominate the market. They don't have to worry about passengers walking away and going to the competition. So one thing we need to do is I think we need to open up the market. We need to have more competition. And we also need rules in place to ensure that there are disclosure requirements such as a public registry. So when there's ever a flight that gets delayed, that information is available to the public. And um, so every passenger that's a victim of a delay can go and get their rightly due compensation. Um, the other thing that we need to do is increase the fines to make sure that the corporate penalties, which were set in the 1980s, is uh, you know the current maximum fine is only $25,000, which has astonishingly never been handed out. Um, you know, it's like that Austin Powers. Uh, scene where it's ridiculously low and outdated. So that fine needs to go up to $250,000 minimum for corporate penalties, plus escalating penalties for repeat offenses. So, you know, you have these repeat flyers, so to speak, of airlines that keep constantly breaking the rules. The, the maximum fine should keep escalating until it gets into the millions. And we should also look at strict standards on the CTA to resolve complaints within a reasonable period of time 
instead of having this 18,000 complaint and growing backlog, that should be dealt with right away. And finally, we should also make the CTA have the power to penalize the airline executives. So instead of getting these multi-million dollar bonuses, that money, they don't get their bonuses. That money should go to passengers who uh, deserve that compensation in addition to corporate fines. And, well, one thing that's really missing is we need a Canadian consumer advocate, which was promised by the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, in 2019. Uh, We're still waiting for it. And that would help deal with the stark power imbalance and abuse that consumers face, not just with airlines, but even with credit agencies, credit reporting agencies, telecom banks, and other transportation and other industries. Very interesting. Well, as mentioned, your op-ed, it's uh, up at theglobeandmail.com and much more as well at consumerrights.ca. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. You as well. Take care. Uh, there you go, Daniel Sai. He um, teaches law and business at the University of Toronto, former senior policy advisor to the federal government, and as mentioned, editor at uh, consumerrights.ca as op-ed. Uh, the headline, We Can't Let Airlines Fly Away from Accountability and Passenger Rights. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. I got a text uh, from a listener here. It says, Rob, we had a flight delay with Sunwing. They paid for hotel, food, and taxi. When we got back, uh, filled uh, on the airline's website. We got the e-transfer within 30 days as required. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I, I get the point he's making about when there's a lack of competition, there's a lack of incentive of the airlines to, to do right by passengers because where else are you going to go? But look, you want people to be confident flying in the first place because it's not a choice of should i go with this airline or that airline a lot of times it's a question well should i travel at all should i fly at all like what kind of headaches am i going to run into if i got to fly somewhere maybe i'll just take a trip you know in my car or you know find some other way of getting away or, or enjoying some time off so you would think it's just smart business you know it's someone who has that experience where there's a delay or a cancellation but they're taken care of don't worry, we got you. Got your hotel, got your food, got you on a new flight, or well, you know what, we'll just compensate for the whole thing. That goes a long way, right, in terms of that person being confident, booking again, traveling again, you know, them telling their friends or social circles about that. That, to me, seems, the, you know, the much smarter long play instead of, you know, fighting tooth and nail over every little, uh, you know, nickel and dime here. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Well, as of a few days ago, Canada's Supreme Court officially has a new member, Justice Michelle Obonsawin. Her appointment to, to the Supreme Court was formally confirmed by the Prime Minister's office. She is Canada's first Indigenous Supreme Court Justice. As the Prime Minister's uh, announcement notes, that she's a widely respected member of Canada's legal community with a distinguished career spanning over 20 years, was appointed to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice in Ottawa in 2017, becoming the first Indigenous woman of that court. Now, obviously, there was something deliberate uh, on the prime minister's part in selecting someone of indigenous background. And I think many have argued that that's long been a glaring absence 
when it comes to the Supreme Court of Canada. So how are we judging uh, when it comes to a proper appointment to the Supreme Court? When we look at qualifications, everything else that goes into those considerations, what makes a good or maybe a not so good appointment? We tend not to in this country scrutinize these appointments nowhere near as closely as they do in the United States, obviously, where those confirmation hearings uh, can become uh, quite the political sideshow. But these appointments do still matter. Uh, you know, judges in Canada uh, do see things differently. And obviously, when it comes to those who have served on the bench, there are qualifications that can be measured, and, and some are more qualified than others. Which brings us then to a, a big question. Is this appointment somebody who is qualified to be on the Supreme Court? Our next guest has some concerns, which are laid out in an opinion piece uh, running today in the National Post, nationalpost.com, on some of the political motivations here and maybe some of the limited qualifications when it comes to this appointment. So joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues, why it, it matters, and again, how we judge whether someone is properly qualified to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Leonid Sirota, who studied law at McGill University, now teaches public law at the University of Reading in the UK. You read more at his own uh, blog, doubleaspect.blog. Uh, Leonid, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Rob. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, so let's start with some of your, your concerns or objections here. What is it about this appointment or this justice specifically uh, that you think does raise some, some questions? So uh, Justice Obonsuin had a career before becoming a judge as an in-house lawyer. This is perfectly respectable, important part of the legal profession, but this is not traditionally where judges, especially Supreme Court judges, have been drawn for, from. Um, it's, I really don't want to be, to come across as denigrating the people who do this work, sure. right. but it's, it's not the kind of really intellectually challenging or high profile work either in on behalf of, of clients in private practice or in academia, which have traditionally been regarded as uh, being the sort of the sort of practice where one built up one's understanding of the law, one's knowledge of the law, one's thinking about the law that then would become the pathway to a judgeship and eventually and especially to the Supreme Court. Right. There are obviously so, a lot of judges in this country and not every judge is necessarily qualified to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. But but what's the criteria that we use or, or ought to be using when it comes to Canada's highest court? That's a very good point. We have hundreds of judges who are all doing important work and most of them good work. Uh, all the judges that I've ever met were working hard to the best of their ability. And some of them, by my lights, are better judges than others, but they, they are all doing important and valuable work. That said, as you say, Rob, not all of them should be Supreme Court material. There's only nine judges on the Supreme Court as compared to many hundreds on 
of various courts across Canada. So what are we looking for? Well, legally, the requirements are very, very limited. We have, in part by law, in part by convention, we have requirements that have to do with regional regional representation on the court. So there have to be three judges from Quebec, three from Ontario, two from the West, and one from the Atlantic provinces. Beyond that, the legal requirements are really very minimal. You have to have served as a either as a judge or as a, being a lawyer for 10 years, and that's about it as a matter of law. But of course, we want a great deal more than that. And then there is all kinds of considerations that a government might take into account, some of them very properly, some perhaps less so. Ideally, you want a diversity of experience on the court. You want some people with, let's say, criminal law background, some people with uh, background in, in litigation, some people maybe with more academic backgrounds. You want people, overall, I think you want people who are serious thinkers who will not be afraid of exercising an independent judgment and pe- people who can ask themselves difficult questions about sometimes even the nature of the law, the relationship between law and justice, sometimes the rela- the appropriate relationship between the courts and the other branches of government. You also want a certain temperament in judges as well and uh, an independence of character uh, and that sort of thing. But you, you, you do want, on the Supreme Court especially, a certain degree of either career achievement or perhaps intellectual achievement that shows you that this person who is then going to hold office until the, potentially until they turn 75, so maybe for 10, 20, or even 30 years, you want to have some confidence that this is one of the the best lawyers in Canada, one of the best judges in Canada. It's no slight on a person to say that she's a perfectly good lawyer, but not Supreme Court material. When it comes to considerations that I guess we would consider political, I mean, you know, being from a certain part of the country is not a qualification or a certain gender is not a qualification or being bilingual is not a qualification. Clearly, all of these things do come into consideration. In this case, obviously, there was some importance placed on having an indigenous member of the Supreme Court. Again, that that is somewhat political, but how how relevant are these kinds of considerations? Is is it something that that should be uh you know factored in so this is this is quite complicated so for one thing i would say in terms of where you come from those regional requirements they are part of the constitution we may or may not like them parliament reaffirmed their importance just a few years ago uh, at the time of the appointment of justice Roe. so this is more than just a political consideration of course it's political at root but it's a requirement of the constitution bilingualism i would also say so i differ from the prime minister and from many other academics in thinking that it shouldn't be seen as an absolute requirement Mm -hmm. but it is very important and i think it it can it's 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 not just politics it's part of because the court hears cases in both languages and although it does uh, have very good translation services for the oral arguments it, the translators are not 
available to translate all the written submissions, which are also a very important part of the case. So being bilingual is, this is not just politics, it's a very important part of your qualifications, although I don't think it should be absolutely mandatory. Then there is other things, including, as you say, well, shouldn't we want to have an indigenous judge? And I would say, I think because there are so few lawyers who ever make it to the Supreme Court, there are many more more qualified than those who will ever in their lifetime receive this appointment. I don't have necessarily a problem with these diversity considerations being part of of the story. What I would say is that they come they come in once you have established that these the person whom you're considering meets your expectations in terms of other qualifications, in terms of being hopefully a great jurist, in in terms of having the credentials. And so if people think, well, Mr. Trudeau had to appoint this person because it's really important to have an indigenous lawyer on the court, what they're saying is, no other indigenous lawyer is better qualified. That's something I'm not convinced of. Back to why this matters. And, and as I said in the introduction, I don't think the Canadians pay close attention to this. Most Canadians probably couldn't even name a single member of the Supreme Court, let alone all of the justices. Uh, so why does it matter? Uh, why should it matter that governments get this right? Yeah, so this this is a really good point. And, and you, you see people trying to make a virtue out of our relative ignorance about the the Supreme Court. Now, I think, you know, being a legal academic, it would be very easy for me to say, well, everybody should pay attention because you want people to pay attention to the stuff that you're particularly interested in and people have other important things to, to that they care about. So I'm not sure that everyone really needs to know the names of the Supreme Court judges off the top of their head. But that said, uh, I will point out, so just by way of, of one example, there was a case decided about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, called Ward, about a comedian in Quebec who had said some very unpleasant things that he probably should not have said about a disabled child who became something of a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so the, this comedian made uh, made jokes at this child's expense uh, that led probably, or at least was an element in the way that this, this child was bullied in school and so on. So there was a lawsuit about whether this comedian uh, should uh, pay damages for having said what he did. And the court divided five to four in, in ruling in favor of, uh, of Mr. Ward, this, the comedian. Now, so this is a closely divided decision. If one judge had ruled the other way, the case would have come out the other way. This would have mattered because that would have potentially opened the door to liability, uh, especially in Quebec, but perhaps perhaps also in other provinces as well, to people uh, for having said things that were simply offensive to someone and hurt someone's feelings. Now, Maybe you think that this is this would have been a good thing, 
or maybe you think that this would have been a terrible thing. Either way, you should care that the Supreme Court ruled the way it ruled. And as it happens, this was a very close case where one vote would have changed the outcome. So it does matter who the judges are. It does matter what they believe in and what they think, how they approach the law and how they approach the judicial role. Uh, Russell Brown is uh, one of the members of the Supreme Court. He was uh, appointed by Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Now, at the time of of that appointment, it it was similarly controversial. There was some who wondered whether uh, Russell Brown was sufficiently qualified. Uh, Some of his previous writings had been seen maybe as as too political. But I think since then, I I don't think there's really been that criticism that that I think, you know, Justice Brown has established himself as a, a very capable, competent member of the Supreme Court of Canada. That said, then, is it is it too soon to judge this particular appointment uh, and, and how this judge, uh, Michelle Obonsawin, will, will perform on the Supreme Court? So those are two somewhat different questions. Right. It is too soon to judge how she will perform. We don't know that for sure. I do. I would like, I'm happy to have the chance to say that. Yeah. We don't know for sure. We we can guess, but those are those should not be very confident guesses, because it could well be that she will perform in a way that will surprise me, and you know, in a positive way, because my expectations are low, perhaps mm-hmm. in a way that will surprise the people who are praising her appointments. Uh, maybe they will not be so happy in a few years. So that's very true. We we don't know for sure. On the other hand. I don't think it's too soon to judge the appointment, the appointment itself, because, as we were just saying, it is a very important part of of the government's job, especially in relation to justice and in relation to the court, that whom it appoints. Well, I think we can pass a judgment on what the government did, and we have to do that based on the information that, so far as we know, the government had available to it. And so that's what I have been trying to do. This is not a judgment primarily, at least on Justice Abonsoin. It's a judgment on the people who appointed her on the basis of what strikes me as very average qualifications, not the kind of qualifications you would want to see on the Supreme Court, and also the answers that she gave to a questionnaire that uh, prospective judges are required to fill out, which, as I argue in that piece in the Post uh, and, and on my blog, don't show very high-level thinking about the role of, of the court. I think we can pass a judgment on that, and we can say that the government appointed somebody who does not appear to have thought in a very sophisticated way, and someone who does not have a wealth of the sort of experience that you would perhaps expect on the Supreme Court. In that sense, we can say this is this is a bad appointment, this is an appointment that should not have been made. Is it possible that we will nonetheless be surprised and Justice Obonsoin will turn out to be a very successful judge? Yes, that is possible. 
I'll leave it on that note. As mentioned, uh, your piece, uh, it's up at thenationalpost.com today and uh, much more as well as mentioned at the Double Aspect blog, doubleaspect.blog. Professor Sirota, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight. Thank you. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Leonid Sirota. Uh, who, uh, as mentioned, studied at McGill University, uh, currently a professor of law at the University of Reading in the UK. You can read him in uh, today's National Post, uh, arguing why he believes this was uh, a bad decision by the government. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.